Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. A quick message before we get started. My name is Dylan, and I'm helping your host, Dr. Chris Kiefer, with a number of exciting projects to expand the podcast. Right now, we're working on a YouTube channel to have video interviews, transcripts for every episode, improvements to the website, and eventually, there will be ways for you to get involved yourself. Decouple will always be ad-free, so if you enjoy the show, please consider donating. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on the website, decouplepodcast.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Francois Morin. He is the China director of the World Nuclear Association, and uh, just going through his resume has a list of qualifications and accolades that is just too long for me to summarize. Um, But one interesting point I noted was that, Francois, you were once the cultural and science attache in Leningrad, uh, USSR. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome, welcome to the couple. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Today, we're going to be deep diving. the history, the present, the future of nuclear in China. Um, but before we get started, um, you know, I, I didn't uh, get a chance to go deep into your introduction. And I, I always love to get more of a sort of human personal introduction. So, you know, tell us something about yourself as if you were striking up a conversation with an interested young person at a, at a dinner party. Um, yes, uh, good, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I am very pleased to participate to your uh, um, our conversation today. Uh, my background is I am from France first, and I studied uh, engineering, physics, mathematics, a little bit of biology in France. And uh, I was mainly interested by nuclear physics and by biophysics too. I made some uh, uh, research and research report uh, interesting in the laboratory in the French Atomic Energy Commission. Uh, under the supervision of uh, Professor Francois Jacob, who was a Nobel Prize uh, in medicine. And uh, I made some research in the molecule, molecular transfer uh, in membranes using uh, radioactive elements. So it's why it was within the French Atomic Energy Commission. But uh, then I had uh, yes, several activities, including what you mentioned, uh, at uh, scientific attaché in, in USSR. And then when I came back to France, even though it was right after Chernobyl, I started uh, working in a French company, uh, Framatome, uh, in the design uh, department and uh, making research on uh, how to implement a, a modification, upgrade, update after, after Chernobyl. On, on French power plants. So I was uh, evaluating, considering the large accident, uh, the long-term consequences of large accidents, typically what happened in uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. But then uh, after a few years, I left for other activities and I, uh, among them, I can quote my uh, time in uh, nuclear medicine. Mm-hmm. I went back to the French At- Atomic Energy Commission and I worked a few years in uh, nuclear medicine uh, equipment. Uh, so this gave me the opportunity at that time already to go to China 
and um, Asian countries and uh, to implement uh, technology transfer in, with Chinese, the Chinese industry. So this is to say that I have uh, been knowing China for a long, long time. And uh, e e even before, even when I was a student, I had chosen at that time Chinese language as an option together I, with Russian. I, I was just going to ask, because uh, on your resume, uh, you speak Chinese, Russian, French, Japanese, English, not Japanese, uh, <laughs> Mandarin. Spanish. And, and when, did, when did you learn uh, Mandarin? Was that, you said, in, in your studies much younger in life? Or was that, yes, was that later I, in life? No, I started at, at university at, um, so what, at the what, same time. What drew you to do that? I mean, that's it's a pretty major uh, intellectual oh. investment to to learn uh, to learn uh, Chinese. Yes, it you, was, uh, and and I you think know, you, when, you kind of interpreted what what was coming in the future. I think in terms of the rise of China, but I mean, this was in the seventies uh, that you were studying China. Uh, yes, in the eighties, in the early eighties, and uh, I studied uh, Japanese. Uh, sorry, Chinese and Russian at the same uh -huh. time. And it's true that's between my relatives or people I knew, some were uh, commenting that, but are you communist? Because it was the only, the only common point between these two, between these two languages, uh, because they have no roots uh, in common any, anyhow. So are you communist to, to explain it by, through logic? And I said, no, but these two countries are the future. Yes, it was my, it wow. was my guess at that time. Wow. Okay. You were, uh, you were ahead of your time, I think. So no, in our in our in our university we were uh, at that time we are 300 uh, person it's nearly the same now among the 300 we were 18 studying russian and five studying chinese wow. and i was wow. the only one uh, studying both <laughs> wow wow but now but now they may have 50 people studying chinese <laughs> right right Okay, I mean, Francois, um, I want to explain sort of my motivations for for bringing you on the podcast. Um, you know, I'm I'm Canadian, um, and I've done uh, a number of profiles of nuclear energy around the world. Um, but China has been a very tough nut to crack. Um, I've really been wanting to explore nuclear in, in countries in the in the global south and in the, you know, the newly developed countries uh, <clears throat> like China. Um, but it's, it's very hard to find an expert to speak with. And, and my motivation for particularly wanting to understand China better is, you know, nuclear in Europe certainly is in crisis. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a real sense that that things are uh, on the retreat in in the West, where where a lot of these technologies kind of had their roots. Um, and as someone who sees a lot of promise in nuclear, particularly around issues of not just climate but but other environmental concerns, um, China seems to be maybe alongside Russia as, as one of these. Maybe <laughs> these countries of the future are kind of bastions of hope where where positive things are happening. And I mean, you're you're from France, which I think is also very interesting. I did have uh, Mirto Tripathi on uh, to talk about the history of nuclear in France and some of the implications for French society. But in my naivete, perhaps, I look at China and I think, you know, is China arriving at the stage for a kind of nuclear um, power breakout in the way that France did at the beginning of the Mesmer plan? So. I'm very interested in sort of exploring those themes with you. Um, and again, this is a very naive uh, assumption. The more you study, the more you realize how, how complex the situation is. So no, no, but, no, but you're right. You're right, uh, Chris. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, quite often in Western countries, we are um, keen to consider that a nuclear plant, what is nuclear plant is a big gold thing making uh, water, 
boiling and uh, taking energy out of, of this boil, boiling water. And uh, in China, yes, uh, it has not the same image, definitely. The mm -hmm. nuclear plant itself has not the same image for many reasons. One of them is that China is developing, it's still a developing country. Even if you go to Shanghai and Beijing, you see amazing progress and a level of life which has nothing to envy to our Western cities. Mm -hmm. But still, it is, in a whole, it's still developing country. And, uh, and the technological things are uh, appreciated. Uh, people see a kind of wonder in that. You know, it's, it's, it was the goal of the Communist Party in China to, uh, to, to make people convinced only by science somehow. And, and there, there's, uh, this, there's this concept I've heard of, of the, like maybe it was more than a century, but kind of a century of like domination and embarrassment and shame, like when the West dominated China, you know, gunboat diplomacy, the opium wars, you know, and, and the sense I think in China that, you know, hey, as a country, we led the world. We were the most developed country in the world. We were the center yes, of science. But, yes, but you go too far. We, I mean, the, the attitude, the Chinese attitude towards nuclear energy is not defined by a nationalistic approach. Mm. They, they don't want to take any revenge. Uh, the first reason why they have a, a nuclear industry is that they want to have all kinds of technology. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, nuclear is one of them. They are not uh, ashamed of uh, buying technologies from abroad. It's what happened with uh, uh, the nuclear industry. When they started the um, building of Diabei NPP in the southern China near, near Hong Kong in uh, 1994, in fact, uh, uh, they, uh, they had to import everything, including concrete, concrete itself. Yes, wow, wow. and now it is true. Now they are, they are, they are, they are. Approximately, they have for the latest Hualong reactor, they have eighty-eight uh, percent of local production. Wow! So they are still importing twelve percent. So you can consider that yes, they wanted to get from zero to one hundred percent. But yeah. if you look on the other side, you can say that they were not ashamed of buying from 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 outside, and yeah. it's still the case. So they are they love what is technological, yeah. be it Chinese or not. And that, that's that stands in I think sharp contrast to uh, to the West, where you know, I mean. There's a huge amount of uh, sort of science and technology illiteracy. There's, you know, a, a real embrace of the precautionary principle. I think we're just seeing the uh, situation with the AstraZeneca vaccine and in Europe where yes. there's this, you know, in my opinion, massively overblown uh, response, which is not understanding the relative risks of, of COVID and, and this vaccine, which, again, statistically, I think 17 million people have been vaccinated and the rate of thrombosis is lower than, you know, in a control group. And but this is also reflected in, you know, Europe's uh, fear of, you know, genetic engineering. And I think to a large degree, their, their fear of nuclear as well. So there's a real sort of attitudinal difference, um, you know, between, I think, developing countries in general, where there's a more positive attitude towards technology and in the West, where we feel for a variety of cultural reasons that technology is, yes. is somehow not the answer that we need to atone for our sins by sort of regressing or abandoning certain technologies. The there is also in China an obvious uh, uh, advantage or superiority even of nuclear or other, other, other um, kind of plants, be they gas plant or, 
or dams or uh, when you go to a nuclear plant, everything is very clear, very mm. clean. The atmosphere is clear, the, the grass is uh, very green, mm -hmm. flowers grow and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's very clean. And this feeling, you, 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 have, you don't have that when you go to a, a big uh, uh, cemetery uh, factory or, or, or if you go to a uh, steel, steel company, you, know, you don't have this, this feeling of uh, cleanliness. Mm -hmm. And uh, the nuclear plant is very clean. So it's, you don't have to convince people that nuclear power, for instance, is a, is a good uh, tool to fight uh, pollution. Right. You don't so, have to explain it. It's visible. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of uh, go a little bit back into the past, because I think, again, one of my naive assumptions about nuclear in China is, okay, hey, you've got this, you know, highly centralized state. Um, if they choose to do something, they're going to do it in a, you know, with central planning in a very structured way. And perhaps nuclear lends itself to, um, to a certain degree of planning within the economy, certainly in the example of France, you know, a, a highly technocratic state. Um, that was able to, you know, standardize uh, design and, you know, build out very efficiently. And I, I kind of assumed that would be what the history of nuclear in China would be before looking into it whatsoever. And I read a great book by uh, Zhu Yi Chong. It's called The Politics of Nuclear Ener Energy in China. And it really goes through the history um, of this kind of um, buffet lunch of, of, you know, different reactor designs that were tried um, you know, and it's and it's. I think China has. I'm not sure if it's more designs and, and different kinds of designs than any other country in the world, but I think it's around seven or eight turnkey foreign um, reactor designs, as well as their their indigenous designs. So that that was very interesting to me. But going even farther into the past, um, you know, when before the mainland China was a nuclear power, I heard this really funny story, and I think it was a gathering of. Um, a nuclear weapon states in the 1970s and they also had a section where they were talking about um, you know as Adams for Peace was in the 50s or whatever but they were talking in the 70s and they were inviting countries that had weapons but also nuclear energy to to talk and of course at that time China only had the the bomb they didn't have yes. um, nuclear energy but it was maybe a diplomatic snub, but they were invited to speak and, and they were sort of confused for a second. And they said, oh, no, because Taiwan has nuclear energy. And I think the way that the way that they told the story, it was sort of like, I don't know that this was really the motivation for them pursuing nuclear energy in the first place, but kind of this moment of shame at, you know, not having developed this. But, you know, China in the 70s was a very interesting place. I mean, in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, um, you know, after a recent famine under Mao and I think in the 60s with the Great Leap Forward, and a country, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that this country that was, you know, so agrarian, so poor, you know, maybe with these islands of, of a small amount of development in the form of the cities and the sea of, of underdevelopment, you know, that they were able to actually make the bomb is, is crazy, you know. Yes, yes, um, this is really crazy. And, as, and from that as a starting point, um, you know, such an undeveloped country pursuing nuclear energy, I mean, the challenges were enormous. Um, so can you like walk us through it just so we can situate ourselves in the present, you know, how nuclear energy um, rolled out in China, how it how it began and, and what sort of forms it took? Uh, yes, uh, first, there, there is a different thing, two different things. You, you have uh, the government, you mentioned the central government taking a centralized decision. Uh, this, of course, played a role for developing the nuclear bomb uh, in the in the in the early 60s. 
definitely. But it's not what is important here for the development of nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because China became a little bit different. I mean, the Chinese government, after uh, Mr. Deng Xiaoping started his rule, and he made uh, the new China, mm-hmm. uh, we can say. Um, and the this bomb is just, just, for, just for listeners who are not familiar with China, Deng Xiaoping, um, it was a rejection of kind of the isolationism of Mao and this idea of yes. opening up the economy, yes. liberalizing Yes, the opening things. up of the economy. Okay. And he, yeah. started, he started in Shenzhen, Shenzhen in 78, when he went down there uh, for making his first speeches. Shenzhen was a village with fishermen. Mm-hmm. And now it's a city of uh, 8 million people, and uh, it's uh, as modern as Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was one hour, uh, half an hour train by, from Hong Kong. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's as, as important, as big, as significant, as rich as Hong Kong. And uh, he was right. So he started this differentiation between... Uh, he, he created these uh, free zones, some free trade zones. Right. He opened seven of them around China. And I mean, he created this uh, confidence in the diversity. And the, the Chinese government today is not ruling everything from the center, mm-hmm. saying, oh, you must do this, go this, this direction. It's not exactly true. The Chinese government is somehow, I would say, uh, to make it short, uh, managing diversity. And that, that's also because, I mean, just I think for outsiders to understand how large China is, how populous it is, I mean, one province is like, you know, I think Germany is a similar population yes. to Guangdong one, province. I mean, it's yes, in governing, yes, one, governing one, you know, how many is it now? I forget one point something billion people yes. centrally is, is, I guess, just an impossibility. Yes, it's why when, when we look, for instance, at the nuclear role in the Chinese uh, electricity mix, we look at China in a whole. So we say, oh, nuclear is only 5% of the mix. So it, look, it looks very small. But when you take the, the provinces where nuclear is active, exists, it's all along the coast, the East Coast, uh, the provinces have uh, 50 million, 60 million, 100 million inhabitants. And there, the nuclear share in the mix is already 25 23, 18%. So yeah. it's a, it's a, if you look at China as a whole, one country, so you, you, would nev- you will never grasp the, the idea of the, uh, the roles of not only nuclear energy, but any kind of other industry. Uh, you're right we should look province per province Mm. yeah Uh, so something that was interesting again because i want to build up uh, some understanding of the history a little bit um and i guess china's gone through some drastic changes right from being a country that was really starved of uh foreign reserves uh foreign exchange um to now a country with massive surpluses right but in those early days um developing a nuclear energy program um as you were saying having to you know, import a lot of the technology that costs a lot of money, right? And it costs doesn't cost uh, Chinese. What is it? The one is it the one in China? Or am I off on the currency there? But it 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 costs you know it costs U.S. dollars or I guess francs at the time or, or uh, pounds. To be, to be honest, and, Chris. To be honest, sorry, yeah. yes, to interrupt you. To be honest, Chinese development in the nineties and until uh, two thousand and ten nearly uh, was. Uh, uh, mainly due to foreign investment yeah and so so the to first be honest. i understand and when like you the look, first... sorry when you look when you look at the when you compare foreign investment in china to foreign investment in india 
Yeah. It explains, I mean, not it explains that, not fully, but uh, partly it explains the difference between the two countries mm. because the foreign investment, direct investment in China was during 20 years, 10 times every year what it was in India. Wow, wow. So, so one of the stories that I heard is that in order to sort of, uh, the, the rationale, I think, for building one of the first big plants, I think maybe Daya Bay, um, which is right across from Hong Kong, was to sell the power to Hong Kong and to be paid in foreign exchange to yes. build up reserves, you know, I guess just in general for the Chinese economy. So that that was interesting. But then, um, you know, later on, I think in sort of the 20, early 2000s, when, when there was sort of a trade imbalance, and I think the US and the EU were starting to raise concerns about this, this trade imbalance that was developing, I understand that some of the reasons that China sort of ate a buffet lunch of different designs was kind of under pressure to buy large things from the EU and from the US to address that trade imbalance. So, okay, fine, we'll buy uh, EPR, we'll buy uh, AP1000 from you guys, you know, $5 billion project or something. And that was a way to sort of, like, it's just so interesting going from a, a country starved of foreign exchange to now kind yes. of, yes, yeah, it's a fascinating, a fascinating history there. Yes, it's amazing. And uh, it's amazing, but uh, it makes sense when you see that, uh, yes, uh, uh, people are eager, not only the government, but each individual is eager to learn Chinese. What, what I was fascinated when I discovered China in the 80s, uh, Chinese people everywhere were studying something. Mm. You know? <laughs> they were reading books, they were repeating sentences, they were studying all the time. So yeah. they have been very eager to learn. And this, uh, this, uh, this is something that all Chinese have in common. Sometimes it's a, it's a burden on, on, on young people and pupils at school, at school particularly, because they have uh, to study uh, late at night until 10 o'clock and get early, uh, get up very early <laughs> at 6.30. Yeah. You know? yeah. So yes, and sometimes they are fed up and many, many parents uh, uh, dream of sending their children abroad for studying, not only for the consequences in terms of visa and uh, etc and uh, possibility to live abroad but also because uh, the burden is not so high as it is on the shoulders of the these pure <laughs> yeah young people. there's definitely people that, that can crack under under that kind of pressure but they love yes they love learning they love mm -hmm. learning there is a, a an actual uh, sincere uh, uh, love for knowledge and, and science and this this explains a lot it doesn't explain all but it, it explains a lot so francois let's let's talk a little bit more about the rationale for developing nuclear energy in china i mentioned that taiwan story that's probably not hugely relevant but um you know from studying china a little bit and, and energy in china what i understand is that you know largely most of the electricity is is thermal generation from coal and that coal is mined in the far north of the country maybe even the north west yes. and it has to be no, like i think not 50, only 50 60 percent of, of rail traffic is just bringing yes. coal from the north to the populated coastal south yes. Is, and yes. what are the other what are the other rationales for um, the Chinese government no, uh, pursuing nuclear energy or becoming kind of potentially the country that will be the nuclear energy superpower of you know of the 21st century? I I am not sure if there is any advantage of being a nuclear uh, I mean ele nuclear electricity world first supplier. I'm not sure being mm -hmm. a nuclear power is something, but being just uh, nuclear 
electricity supplier is another thing. And I, I would not, I would not say, I would not bet that it is a, it's it's a big thing. It's a big advantage. Going to the moon is uh, probably yes, it has a significance, a symbolic significance. Being right. the first in whatever industry, it has also its significance. Being the first in producing cars or in producing uh, uh, solar power, it's it, it also it's also meaningful. Yes, mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, it's not a goal by itself. Uh, right. Chinese are not looking for being the first in uh, nuclear production. But what's, I don't think what's so. the rationale just for, for developing nuclear in general? I, I think China, it is yeah. still it is still the extreme uh, 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 extremely strong demand in electricity. The mm -hmm. Chinese average uh, con consumption per capita per year is uh, nearly five thousand, uh, a little less than five thousand kilowatt power. When 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 it's uh, eleven and something eleven and something thousand in US, wow. it's uh, uh, six seven thousand in France, and same in U in UK. Do you know and, what it uh, used to be in China, like in the eighties or nineties? Uh, in the eighties or nineties, it was below two thousand. Yeah, okay. it was one one thousand and five hundred at that time, maybe. And so now it's uh, nearly five thousand with with a, of course a big. Um, uh, diversity. I mean, you have poor, poor provinces where the, the consumption is only uh, 1,800 uh, right. kilowatt hour per capita per year, where you have provinces around Shanghai or Beijing where it's over um, 6,800. Right. So you have discrepancies, yes, in the country, but in average, in all, it's uh, it's uh, only 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 5,000. So some people sometimes I see that quite often, particularly. In, when I read the Bloom, Bloomberg news that uh, uh, the, the Chinese energy uh, market is uh, oversupplied, mm -hmm. and this is a problem. Supposedly, it's to be a problem for 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 nuclear. This is wrong. Uh, the Chinese market is not is undersupplied. It, it, there is not enough electricity. All the more that now with the plan of having a, a zero carbon or less carbon, let's say, less carbon uh, uh, economy by 2050. One uh, important uh, point to get that is uh, to increase the electricity share in, in the economy. Um, uh, so so ele electrify right. everything, right? That's the- Yes, the electricity yeah. for everything, including for cars, etc. Yes. So uh, this, uh, this, this is, a, it, it is a strong drive to increase whatever whatever source of power. Mm -hmm. So including, I may disappoint you, but including for coal. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, to also here, we must be honest, coal has provided uh, the, 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 the reason for development in China. Mm -hmm. As uh, the same in, in, in UK in the 19th century. Sure, yeah. When you look at the coal use in UK, you see it's strictly parallel uh, to the development. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you compare, for instance, what's the difference between UK and Italy in the 19th century? It's one is developing coal, the other not. And yeah. Italy, yeah. Italy rises, starts rising when it starts using coal. Yeah. So it, it was the same for China. And uh, I know that in the West we say, oh, coal is a devil and uh, we should uh, get uh, rid of it. But uh, the plan, for instance, right now in 2020, the plan between now and 2030 is to increase the coal capacity 
by as much as new nuclear capacity wow. in China. Wow. So nuclear is growing, it's a good thing, but we should not forget that coal is also growing. Yeah, and, uh, you, you, de you depressed me with something else uh, when we were having an initial conversation earlier, and that was that with the, and this was about energy consumption, you were saying that the projected increase in energy consumption just for, I think, 5G infrastructure, internet infrastructure would consume... Yes. I'm not sure all of the current output of, of China's all of the, Yes, all of the current, just the data centers and the, the, data the centers, yeah. management yeah. of these uh, 5G things uh, is, uh, yes, it requires as much electricity as what nuclear produces today. And that's about 40 gigawatts, is it? Uh, in, in terms of, you no, know, it's, it's, uh, it's, in fact, it's in terawatt hour. Terawatt hours, yeah. I yeah. And it's nearly, it's nearly 300 terawatt hour. Uh, wow. uh, uh, and this, I mean, that's a growing area. data centers. I was, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Mark P. Mill's work on this, but he, he talks about sort of predicting future energy requirements. And he says, listen, for food, it's pretty simple. The difference between a starvation diet and a gluttonous diet is, you know, 2000 calories maybe. And for objects and and goods i mean people are always finding new gadgets and toys they want but that's somewhat predictable but for um information processing the sky's kind of the limit especially with quantum computing and artificial intelligence and, and neural networks that are not just performing a calculation and stopping but constantly running calculations it's it's yes uh, it's kind of mind-boggling and i mean it it allows us to crack for instance the genome of of the covid uh, or the coronavirus in you know a matter of a few days but um, yes it requires an enormous amount of energy yes you know to to come back to one of, of your previous uh, question but young people for instance in china now they are young engineers uh, graduated uh, people in physics in mathematics whatever in sciences they are all dreaming yes it is true they are probably more dreaming in working in uh, in uh, in Alibaba or 5G related company somehow than working in, in, in a nuclear, in nuclear. But, but one doesn't go without the other. Yes. So uh, people are forgetting that what they are developing now, even if it looks uh, yes, uh, purely uh, uh, non-physical, but mm -hmm. it requires a lot of uh, material, material things, yes. So let's let's get back to my sort of original thesis of you know my my hope that you know in some way China and it's naive I totally get this that China is on track you know they've they've experimented they've they've picked a lot of different designs but they've started to um, kind of create a, an indigenous design for for domestic use but also for export the Hualong one that maybe you know. I always think of nuclear in this fashion, right? So if we're thinking about um, decarbonization, for instance, um, nuclear is like an enormous freight train, right? And it takes a while to build that train. Um, you know, you need a big engine on it and it takes a while for that train to start moving down the track and building momentum, right? And that usually requires a lot of government support and shepherding and coordination. And something like a, you know, a solar panel or a wind turbine is like a bicycle, right? And you can get it going really fast. It doesn't go super fast. You know, the, the, the rider needs to take a break every once in a while. Um, once the train's moving, it's, it's displacing enormous amounts of, of carbon. It's kind of payload is enormous compared to what you can fit in the bicycle basket on the front of the bike. Yes. 
but it requires all of the shepherding and it requires a state to really get behind it and organize it. And so that happened in France under Mesmer. Um, and, you know, for the 70s, and you were very familiar with that as a, as a French engineer, is China, and, and I mean, that was for a certain set of reasons. I mean, you know, in France, uh, on a pas de, de, de pétrole, mais on a des idées. We don't have uh, oil, but we have ideas. Um, China, obviously, they have a lot of fossil, they have coal. I guess there's some new gas fields coming online, but how naive I am I, I guess, in hoping perhaps that China's about to sort of have a really big nuclear um, renaissance, shall we call it, and significantly displace um, fossil with nuclear in the way that France did under the Mesmer plan? Yes, being, a, yes, the decision being centralized, somehow it helps, but not because one guy decides for everyone. Mm -hmm. It's because, uh, it's because what, what it, Economically, only from the economic point of view, nuclear is profitable in China mm -hmm. for the nuclear companies. And uh, they make a lot of money, billions of money, CGN or CNNNC are very profitable. Uh, then usually they make not only nuclear electricity, but other things, but still the nuclear part is profitable, even at the feed-in tariff that is fixed by the government. They are profitable. They are selling, by the way, a big share, an increasing share of their production, up to 30%, 40% in some regions. Uh, they are selling this production uh, on the free market somehow, not, mm -hmm. not under the tariff fixed by the government. So they are, in fact, they sell it at a lower price um, and they still make money. Uh, the main reason for that is uh, uh, what th th is the support they get from the government, but not in the sense you may imagine, but in another sense, in the sense that they have a low rate loan from the banks. And this is yes, the key. Yes, okay. The interest rate is what makes or doesn't make nuclear expensive. And if, if the interest rate is low enough, because, because the financial cost is enormous in the big infrastructure, yeah. and the Chinese are used to that because what they did in the past, be it uh, roads, uh, airports, um, uh, railways, it, it is always, it has been till today, enormous infrastructure which are very costly by themselves. Big know? capital costs, uh, yeah. Uh, look, look at the Berlin uh, airport, which was uh, uh, by several billion uh, euro uh, uh, of a budget and uh, by 15 years uh, delayed, an airport. So this does not happen in China. Mm -hmm. For the airport also, it doesn't happen. I mean, they, they build airport very, very fast. So uh, nuclear is just in the same, on the same, on the same way. There is not nothing specific. There is no specific. Uh, uh, it's just a state which, uh, by the means of loans and low interest rate, is uh, providing development. Yes, is guaranteeing development. Uh, yeah, I was talking. Chinese companies, for instance, Chinese companies in in Africa. I have been working for them, so I, I know that Chinese companies in Africa who build roads or dams, they have a, a profit uh, rate. Uh, which is uh, around 2%, extremely low. Mm -hmm. and But they still make money. Sometimes they miss the target and they don't make money, lose money. It right. happens too. But uh, I mean, they, they are not uh, very... Uh, uh, 
they are they are ready they are ready to uh, sacrifice in fact their profit their revenue on for the for the sake of long term success and it, it's it's true at the company's level not only at the governmental decision level Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting because you know I had a uh, David Watson on talking about uh, nuclear in the UK, particularly Hinkley Point, and how you know I think interest rate is about nine percent on that project. Yes, <laughs> and I think more than half of the uh, the final cost is going to be the cost of capital. Um, so that's a big difference. But also, so the other thing that comes up a lot in the West is you know with liberalized electricity markets, nuclear tends to not be favored well. I think because of, you know, providing this secure baseload, you know, what's what's lucrative is, you know, bid-in prices for peak demand and things like that. Um, is that structured differently in China in a way that's more favorable to nuclear? Um, yes, because the demand is high. Yes, right. because the demand is high. But the problem you are mentioning of uh, uh, the peak uh, supply even by wind and, uh, and solar this problem is reaching uh, China also. Mm. It is not entirely visible. Why? Because the provinces which are um, rich in wind and solar uh, are the Xinjiang, the Gansu, Inner Mongolia, uh, Yunnan somehow, uh, underdeveloped regions. And these regions are not yet able to uh, to use first 100% of the electricity they produce because their their level of development is very low compared to the eastern part. Mm-hmm. And uh, second, uh, they cannot physically export this, uh, these energies because uh, there are more and more now uh, high voltage uh, transmission, but they are still very costly. And it puts the cost of, sol- the cost of solar power produced in Inner Mongolia, for instance, for the Eastern coast uh, uh, would be twice the price of the nuclear, local wow. nuclear kilowatt hour. So it, it reminds uh, me a little bit of, you know, this idea of like transporting coal from the far north to the southern coast and transporting electrons from wind and solar from the, the north or the, the far west is, uh, you know, like you're saying, a big, you know, price. that from, you know, that from 2009, <laughs> railways or DC or yeah, <laughs> transmission lines from, from 2009, 2010, China started to import coal. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? Wow. Why did they import coal? Yes, because if you say China imports coal, it doesn't make sense. They are themselves uh, having so much uh, uh, coal. But if you look at south of China and north of China, then there the situation is different. Mm -hmm. And it it happens that the coal supplied to southern China coming from Indonesia was cheaper locally than the coal coming from the north. Like, what's the distance that they're shipping that coal by freight train from the north to the southern coast? Is that... Thousand kilometers, two thousand. Like, I'm uh, trying to no, put yes. that into perspective. Yes, it's, it's two thousand kilometers, roughly, uh, depending on the region. But uh, uh, in fact, because well, like, not, that's, that's not of, question, yeah, it's not kind of a like question halfway, of kilometers. Halfway across the United States, so I think the U.S. Yes. is like five thousand kilometers wide. Yes, and yeah. it's not only a question of kilometers. It's what you mentioned. The 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 the, the, the railways are uh, full with this. Uh, with many trains, in fact, and uh, including the coal coal uh, transportation, but uh, so so it makes they have to 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 buy in advance the transport, and uh, the pressure on tra- transport makes it uh, high price and uh, not uh, very uh, manageable. It's it's less manageable for for Guangdong for Guangdong province yeah. than buying coal from Indonesia. 
I mean, it almost seems like we're discussing, you know, uh, like a federal state, but I mean, a number of different countries, we talked about this before, each, each province is so populous and the characteristics are so different that, you know, the, the Southeast is its own country. It's, it's quite nuclear powered. You're saying 25, 30%. And in the future, that's probably going to increase to a very large percentage of the electricity in these areas. Whereas the North will stay with more coal because they can burn it locally. And there's less of a pressure to, to build yes. there, perhaps. Um, what are the, so in terms of other rationales, I mean, Beijing is was famous for uh, its air pollution. I think there was a huge shutdown of industries. And, you know, in terms of permits for driving a car in the city during the Summer Olympics, I think 2010, maybe, um, you know, that was a, a huge issue for the athletes and, and in general. Um, how much is air pollution driving the uh, adoption of, of nuclear energy in China? Yes, it serves, it serves as an argument or an excuse, depending where where, which side you are, but uh, uh, for building nuclear, but not only for building uh, uh, all what is non-coal uh, energy, uh, including uh, dams and uh, solar plants. And you have, you know, in wind for wind farms, for instance, you have huge projects of 20 billion, 20 billion US dollars project currently under construction for a wind farm. Wow. Yes. So it's, 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 I mean, they are, need, they are in need of everything. So this is the real drive. Now, regarding the pollution, yes, I, I, I've been living in China all this time and I saw myself the pollution rising from right 2007 to 2015, I would say the pollution was only increasing in Beijing, in Beijing city. I remember having been in the Northern China and you couldn't see because of the smoke, you couldn't see further than uh, 100 meters. Um, uh, but this has changed after, after 2015, it started to, to change. The peak was probably 2015. So the peak has nothing to do, and the fact that we decreased from this peak has nothing to do with nuclear power. Mm -hmm. uh, the fight against, against pollution started much earlier this, uh, or I mean, apart from this, uh, uh, the nuclear contribution to it. Mm -hmm. But it is used as, 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 yes, as an excuse. Look, the, the pollution is non-bearable. Non you could not, should not stand that. So yeah. support, please support nuclear. Yes, it plays a role. But the, the, the fight against uh, pollution was done with the closure of um, many factories, yeah. uh, steel, cement, um, all these kind of factories were uh, displaced from uh, around the big cities and they were displaced in uh, f more remote locations and this helped to uh, to to relieve the the the, the, the urban the uh, yeah, the, yes, yeah. yes, the urban areas so let's uh, and, and i'm guessing that uh, like it, the way you're painting this is is you know yes air pollution is a consideration but it's not a primary driver and i'm guessing that climate change is also you know an excuse for nuclear or you know a selling point but it's not a primary driver for the ad ad adoption of nuclear in the way that say climate change is a, a driver for wind and solar in the us or in europe yes so the primary climate primary driver is still just the quality of nuclear in terms of providing electricity at a decent price point that's reliable like is that like is that what's driving it more or less i i, I think so yes uh, in fact uh, um, you're right pollution played a role uh, climate change 
change is a selling point. Uh, the, the best proof for that is that Mr. President Xi Jinping uh, talked about the 2060. He didn't talk about 2050 goal, but 2060, net zero carbon in China. Uh, he started talking about that only last September. Mm -hmm. Uh, while the plan to uh, build six to eight new nu nuclear reactor per year, uh, this plan came out uh, three years earlier and was officially uh, expressed in, um, in April uh, 2019 by the Ministry of Environment. So it's much before mm -hmm. the climate change issue. So if we crunch those numbers, I mean, what China is currently sitting, I think, around 50 gigawatts of capacity. Um, and, you know, that's the third um, largest sort of nuclear country in terms of I think it's, it's uh, the US with about 100 yes. gigawatts, France with 70, China's about 50. How is that going to change, you know, say by 2030 or 2050, if these projections uh, continue or if, if the trends continue? Will, will China be the, the largest uh, nuclear producer soon? Is it going to have more reactors than the rest of the world by, you know, 2100? Like, what's what's anticipated here? Yes, I, I anticipate that by 2030, China will be the first uh, nuclear producer. Yes, in terms of electricity, by 2030 would uh, uh, overpass the U.S., and uh, for France, in fact, uh, last year, 2020, China produced uh, 300 and nearly 370 uh, terawatt hours, while France produced only 335, something like that. So last year, France uh, was behind China. But, but it is true that France was a little bit at a lower uh, level than in 2019. So yes. the 2019 level is uh, in France was still higher than 2020's level in China. Right. Uh, but right. anyhow, anyhow, next year or within two years, uh, uh, China will be the second for sure, and uh, will be the first in 2030, around 2030, mm -hmm. and will go on developing. What is amazing, it's not that it will get the first rank in 2030, is that it will go on after that developing at the same pace. This, this is the, 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 the stranger thing. And uh, they may have uh, 200 gigawatt operational twice what is uh, currently in US uh, by 2040. And it will not stop there. Yeah. It will not stop there. It will go up to 300 gigawatt. Maybe not, not with the same technologies. Definitely they will adopt uh, this. Uh, they are now building uh, fast breeders reactors with the help of Russians and so. So mm -hmm. the technologies will be different, but the move will be, will be uh, slow bit, okay. uh, from PWR to fast breeder. I'm going to be the skeptic. I'm going to be the skeptic here because you know we've we've certainly heard that claim at the beginning of the French rollout, for instance. I mean, France was supposed to electrify absolutely everything. Basically, I forget the the projection of the number of reactors in the U.S. in the heyday yes. in the build out. There was going to be a thousand uh, gigawatts of capacity, and all electricity in the states was going to be electric. Uh, so it would be nuclear. Um, how is it different in in China that that this isn't just a kind of overzealous uh projection of the of the nuclear industry or no for the for the for the reason you you mentioned yourself uh, uh if you take the fujian province with this uh, 50 million inhabitants and uh, uh, and it's 25 uh, percent of nuclear uh, share in its local mix then you take the the uh, uh, neighboring uh, province 
uh, and, uh, and and what what do you get? You get again 50 million people inhabitants, 60 million inhabitants, and zero nuclear. Mm, okay. So so for the for the reason of geography, this growth is um, trustable. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It, you're right. Maybe maybe in the on the east coast, maybe nuclear share will not go finally beyond. Uh, 25% or 30% of the mix. Still, there is a potential, the, the, the growth potential at 30% of the mix is still very important and will justify uh, another 100 gigawatt uh, mm -hmm. in China. But even when this is obtained, you have all the other uh, provinces uh, that will be somehow like new nuclear countries. Mm -hmm. And they will want to have their their ten percent of the share, twelve percent, fifteen percent in nuclear, and this is another two hundred gigawatt. Yeah. So what's what's the relevance of the Hualong one, um, and and particularly, I mean, I guess domestically, is that what's you know you said fast breeders are kind of the future into the twenty fifties probably, but for now anyway, um, what's the relevance of the Hualong one domestically? Is that kind of what's going to be chosen, built out exclusively? Are they going to keep importing other designs, like European and American designs? Hopefully some Canadian, um, but or are they going to just stick with the Hualong one domestically? And what does it mean for the international market? Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, we've lived in sort of the American century um, in the 20th century for sure. Um, everyone looks to the U.S. for leadership and to Europe to some degree for leadership and sort of follows that plan. That's going to change as China rises to be, you know, the largest, I mean, sort of the largest economy in the world. But I, I really do expect that there's going to be a shift in a variety of levels um, towards you just you tend to the world tends to pivot towards the most powerful country in the world and try and emulate it to some degree. Um, do you see um, China's investment in nuclear, the Hualong one, its export markets um, being very significant in terms of shifting global energy production or, you know, exporting nuclear to, to developing countries? What's your what's your uh, predictions um, there? Your forecast? I, I don't think that China will uh, energetically rule the world. China is importing more than half of its oil yeah. and gas, and this is for many years ahead. It will be the case. Uh, so, but regarding industry, yes, China may try to get a bigger share of the world uh, uh, cake. And like if, uh, if they if they can if they can build stuff on budget and on time, I could see rather than selecting the EPR for you know some future site in the UK. That I mean, again, geopolitics will probably interfere with this a lot. But you could imagine saying, okay, we want to build a nuclear plant. We want to build it on budget and on time. Who does that well? You know, I guess it was the South Koreans for the UAE, but I mean, that may more and more become China as this nuclear freight train gets moving and the supply chain is incredibly well greased, the workforce is well greased. I mean, a lot of infrastructure projects overseas that China does, they just bring in the whole labor force, from what I understand, which frustrates the local population, but... Yeah. There are many people. There are many in China, in the within the nuclear industry. You're right. There are many people uh, advocating uh, the development of the Hualong and the success of the selling the success of the Hualong as the the the, the main uh, um, point for exporting uh, Chinese know-how. And uh, they have been saying that already many years. Uh, uh, underlying, for instance, the point that. Uh, uh, selling uh, is what they were saying. Selling one one nuclear reactor is equivalent 
to uh, the, the sale of uh, one million cars. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, money, uh, revenue, uh, and in terms of also of uh, uh, working forces that is created in China for such uh, export. But uh, one, you didn't see that many Chinese cars <laughs> abroad since there are many Chinese uh, car manufacturers, you know, we, we don't know, we usually believe you are only one Geely and uh, <laughs> some other BB, BYD, but uh, you have 40 40 big car manufacturers in in china hmm. and this and you still don't don't see chinese cars in in canada or in uh, or in france yeah. not many i have not seen yet chinese cars in, <laughs> yeah. in france yeah. on the roads but uh, uh, so uh, china can develop its nuclear power without without selling exporting uh, uh quantities of it uh it's 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 local market is enough for supporting the development of the nuclear industry however you're right they they, they are now understanding the importance of being uh, accepted worldwide and it's why they are working with uk but not only with poland with uh, turkey with uh, even with south africa with uh, uh, saudi arabia uh, Jordan, uh, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, we, which has Thailand has already some shares in a look in a southern Chinese um, nuclear power plant, and so they are working on all these countries to try to uh, um, uh, compete with the Russians. The Russians have today 134 billion uh, US in their. Uh, orders uh, in a nuclear power uh, equivalent uh, uh, and, and china has only two 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 reactors in uh, pakistan um, but and uh, so they want to copy yes to copy to uh, they are they have been uh, stimulated by the success of uh, rosatom in the world and they believe they can do the same but they know their own uh, um weak points or shortcomings even in mm -hmm. this in this regard they acknowledge for instance that they don't have what you mentioned they don't have the geopolitical power that uh, russia has mm. in some places like in kenya for instance they are strongly pushing for a nuclear reactor in kenya mm -hmm. and um, yes there they may have uh, because they are of their global presence in in africa but uh, in other countries, it's more difficult. Yes, probably it's more difficult than 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 Russia than for Russian who are well established in Egypt and in Turkey and, and so. So they know that they have to work on that. They have to make working together the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Industry, mm -hmm. which is you know, the ministries don't work well together in China. <laughs> so right. here they have to join. They have to join, and it's 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 a, it's a difficult task and. Uh, also, they, they know that they have to enrich their offer, not only in building a Hualong, uh, for instance, uh, which they are proposing, for instance, now in Uzbekistan, but they have also to, uh, to uh, propose a whole uh, range of services, including the fuel supply and the fuel reprocessing mm. after it has been used locally. It means uh, taking it back to China 
It means transport. It means uh, safety, security. Mm. It means uh, a plant for reprocessing or a place to storage it, to store it. So it's a, it's a complex uh, issue. It's not only I sell my uh, my Hualong for uh, ten uh, pounds less than the EPR uh, per megawatt hour in in in, in UK. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not that easy. Uh, what do you do with the, how do you fuel for for developed uh, nuclear countries like UK? It's easy, but for all the other countries, it's not the same. Right. So they are working on that. It's why this uh, the development of Hualong is uh, very satisfactory. They have uh, twelve plants under uh, under construction. Twelve uh, Hualong. Currently, they plan twelve others in the near future in the coming three years. So uh, yes, it has a nice future in China. They have some uh, uh, objectives and, uh, and possibilities uh, in other countries, but it's not as easy as it, as it looks like. And what, what does it look like for, you know, say they build 12 Hualongs, you know, we, I think we know from nuclear economics, typically that you keep building the same thing, you keep building the supply chain, the workforce, the expertise, the, the cost continues to come down economics is not my strong point but in terms of uh, you know a cost per megawatt hour can we compare the hualong to what's being built in terms of like the epr or the ap1000 and yes, then what do you and what and then what do you expect for that price curve to be like for the hualong for instance is that going to come fact, down significantly in 10 years after they've built another like 30 of these things or in fact what surprised me you know we don't have yet the price per uh, kilowatt hour uh, or megawatt hour because uh, the, the the first hualong in futing across uh, the taiwan strait is uh, uh, has been connected uh, has been uh, uh, operating commercially only in january this year Right. In 2021 so we don't have the i mean uh, experience enough to, to 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 check but what we have is the nearly we nearly have is the construction uh, cost so i mean right. the, the cost per um, kilowatt or per, per for this installed. first for this first of a kind build yes yes yeah. but and and strangely, I mean, strangely for some miners, not for me, but strangely, yes, the, this this cost is not as low as it could have been expected. Uh, this uh, it's only seven percent cheaper than the Westinghouse AP one thousand. Mm. Built in China, right? Because I mean, yes. built in Georgia, that's yes. a very different cost. Okay. Yes, per 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 megawatt per capacity. What's, what is that? What is that number per megawatt hour? Uh, it's uh, it's it's around uh, uh, three thousand uh, US dollars. Okay. I forgot the exact figure, okay. but it's, uh, so it's. Uh, I can tell you exactly, oh, it's but okay. yeah. it's uh, yes, yes. It's uh, they are not uh, um, they are not as cheap as they could be, as we expected them to be. This uh, this Hualong. Um, and and is that, is and, that because of first of a kind considerations or is that be, like, are they going to get a lot cheaper or you, you expect that they're not going to be a big breakthrough in terms of being cheaper? You know, I have, for instance, here, the price in, uh, in Yuan. I yeah. didn't translate it in US dollars, but you have 15,600 for the Hualong and 18,300 for the AP1000 and 16,800 for the EPR. Okay. So the difference is not that big. Right. Uh, and, and then again, it's the construction cost, mm. because for the operating cost, 
the higher cost for EPR will go down because uh, you have uh, 1,600 megawatt for the for the, the EPR and 1,200 megawatt only for so for the same infrastructure. Right. I mean, for one infra one big spot of infrastructure, we you have a bigger uh, output. Right. So there's economy uh, of scale. Yeah. So you will have automatically an economy of the sales. So, so the 18% more expensive EPR might become same price in terms of kilowatt hour in the coming years. Interesting. So, so it's, it's not it's not as cheap as it as it as it as we would like it. And also, don't misunderstand the, the Chinese uh, advantage. We have been used in the West to uh, buy uh, toys for children because they were cheaper made in China. Right. And they were of a much, uh, much uh, less uh, good quality. But it's not the case in the industry, particularly with the nuclear industry uh, and also for the big construction industry. Don't, don't believe that uh, a dam uh, made by Chinese in, uh, in uh, Congo is uh, half the price of the same dam made by the French. No, it is nearly as expensive. Mm -hmm. So the advantage of Chinese for these developing countries or for themselves, it's the same inside China. It's not that they are low price. This is an outdated uh, view. It's they are guaranteeing the construction, particularly the construction time. Mm -hmm. uh, I have myself participated to the construction of a highway by Chinese uh, companies in Africa. I organized, uh, it was before joining the WNA, I was working on big project infrastructure for, for a while. And uh, we, we, I was representing Chinese, we Chinese were uh, more expensive than uh, US, Turkey, Italy, uh, and uh, less expensive than Japan, less expensive than French in, of, in, in uh, international yeah, tenders. But, what we could guarantee is the construction in time. Why? Is that because we had we were sending uh, thousands of workers working day and night? No, because we were able to mobilize a lot of equipment at the same time, right. all along the infrastructure, which meant what? Which meant day one, we could use 100 million or 150 million US dollars. Mm -hmm. And nobody else could do it. Right. Okay. So the quantity of uh, available equipment on site was uh, convincing from the Chinese point of view to guarantee right. the construction on time at the end of the end. And with nuclear, so, that's obviously so the, key, a, yeah. the key. The key for construction success by China in foreign countries and in China as well at the end of the end is money. Mm -hmm. And with nuclear, with that, with that cost of the cost of capital, if you, if you finish on time or early, that's yes. a huge, a huge implication on the price. Yes. Let, let's, let's, uh, we, we have a little bit of time left and I'm, I'm going to try and pick your brain a little bit more, but in terms of advanced nuclear and small modular reactors, this is a question I've had, you know, countries with really healthy nuclear industries like uh, Russia and China, um, it's 
you know, in the West, I think we've become maybe much more humble or in some ways have a lot of hubris in terms of, you know, okay, we our nuclear industries are in total atrophy, but we're going to go and do this super advanced stuff, or we're going to experiment with a, you know, an economy of multiples with SMRs and see if we can get the, you're, you're talking about how the EPR may be cheaper than the Hualong because it's just a bigger reactor and economies of scale. But in the West, it's sort of like, we're going to tear that all up and try building lots of really small reactors. And maybe that's the future and, and this revolution in, in price. Um, my, my contention has always been, listen, I mean, let's look at what the really healthy nuclear industries are doing like Russia and China. I mean, surely if, if this were true, these countries would be wise to it and they'd be banging out, you know, SMRs like sausages in, in, in factories. Um, you know, because if, if this is just such an evident, you know, if this is such an evident thing or self-evident thing, why would they not be doing it? And I mean, I, there's obviously a bunch of other factors I might not be considering. Just China's a big country. It has big demand. It needs big reactors maybe. But what, what's going on in terms of, uh, I guess, particularly small modular reactors? Is that something that China's pursuing, not just for sort of remote military base applications like, like Russia's doing with, you know, the far north, for instance? But um, is, that, is that something that's, is there going to be an SMR revolution in China where they're going to all of a sudden be building lots of really small reactors and putting them all over the place? Yes, thank you for this uh, very interesting question. In fact, China um, is developing SMR, yes. Uh, all companies, CNNNC, CGN, uh, speak, uh, they, are, they have all their designs to, uh, of several designs. Each of these companies has several designs of SMR. Mm -hmm. 100 megawatt, 150 megawatt, 200 megawatts, up to 400 megawatt for one of the speaker projects. So they all have these projects. They have also projects for kind of small modular reactors, which are in fact heating reactors for yeah. northern China yeah. to replace region. all the heating systems. But even if you look only at electricity, there are several reasons behind the development or the interest to in, into SMR in the world and in China as well. Is uh, first, it, it, it enables to, uh, to cut into pieces this initial capital. Yeah. So the main, it's look, it seems that the main advantage of, <laughs> of SMR is to uh, decrease the, the, the impact, the burden of the initial capital. And yeah. we come back to the example I told you about the dams or highways in, in Africa for, yeah. for China. So this is not a very big issue today in China, but in the world, it is an issue. Uh, it is why SMR may have a future beyond what you mentioned, remote mining sites in Canada or remote communities, yes, in the, in the north, in, in, in Alaska or elsewhere. Uh, Yes, uh, SMR uh, may have may may help in that regard. They are also uh, changing the face of uh, safety, nuclear safety, because SMR are reducing by themselves and by their inner capabilities the emergency zone. Mm -hmm. This is the main thing because you you know that Fukushima's big problem was the evacuation of the people. Mm -hmm. not, not the radiation, but the evacuation. Yeah. Yeah. And the evacuation, the decided evacuation was a consequence of the, uh, what was considered as the emergency zone uh, at the first. So if emergency uh, zone is decreased uh, by from five kilometers uh, to 500 meters, mm -hmm. uh, yes, it may have an impact as how, how people can accept 
an SMR not not too far from from cities. So, but with, so within is, China, within China, is this like do do you think there's an economic rationale? Is do you think there's a big shift that's about to happen in the Chinese nuclear industry where they're going to say, you know what, forget these big projects, these big designs, let's go, or I not even forget, so. but let's but let's create a parallel path where we're doing lots and lots of SMRs, or will SMRs be fringe in China? But you see, you say yourself, the advantage of SMR is that if there are many. Mm-hmm. If, there are not, if you have not many SMRs at once, then it loses its advantage. So, so and you need, China- you need, I think there's an open question about like, so if it's an economy of scale versus economy of multiples, how many multiples do you need until they equal out economically? And you know that might be 10 SMRs, it might be 20, until your supply chain's going and your factory's going. I mean, what are your it thoughts? Has been calculated, it has been calculated by one of my colleagues from Cambridge University. And it depends on the, on the capacity of the SMR. If it's a 100 megawatt or 200 megawatt, yeah. it makes a big change. And you may have uh, this kind of break even in uh, for 200 mega- megawatt might be 25 units but for 100 megawatt it would be 150 units so so it's uh, yes the, the 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 evaluation of the efficiency economic efficiency of smr is very difficult to 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 decide today but china is not only considering SMR, but is building an SMR. In fact, China, even though China has the same goal, as you mentioned, the one for supplying some military zone somewhere, it might also, they might also have that in mind, but uh, 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 they are anyway uh, building right now, starting last year, end of last year, an SCP-100 by CNNNC in the southern province of Hainan, in the island of Hainan. Mm. So there is an SMR under construction. And uh, everybody um, expects a new scale in USA to have the the first SMR in the world in uh, 2028, something like that. And that will be three or or four years after China. Yeah, (laughs) interesting. China will have its SMR working. And it's SMR in the sense that we in our sense, uh, it's a compact things with the steam generator included in the in the in the containment and so yes so it's a it's a true SMR and it's already under construction. Yeah. I guess uh, so much I want to talk about with you. Maybe we'll have to have you back for for a second show here. Um, your real wealth of knowledge on a on a country that has you know it's when I was researching for the show there's not much available. You know there's World Nuclear Association articles, Wikipedia, I don't. I didn't find any podcasts or not much YouTube materials. So it's a real, it's a real pleasure having you. But you know, getting back to kind of attitudes towards nuclear energy in China, um, you know, in, in the U.S. and Europe, it's really become a culture wars issue. Um, you know, between sort of a green left environmental side and maybe some folks you know who are very anti-nuclear and some some folks on the right wing that are pro-nuclear. But there's this tension where the pro-nuclear people are free market fundamentalists and therefore not even though they might be okay with it there's no mechanism for them to actually deploy it and the left just hates it in china you're saying there's just more of a acceptance and a enthusiasm about about technology but there are there are anti-nuclear people and maybe a, a movement in china very interesting when i read this book by yuzi ching um, she was talking about a really like one of the first large protest movements in hong kong had to do with um, shortly after the Chernobyl disaster, um, the, I think it was in protest against the this first real uh, mechanism to get foreign exchange to build that nuclear plant right next to Hong Kong. Um, and this was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the street, teachers unions, all kinds of unions. 
So there's a history, you know, I think a lot of people, again, assume Chinese martial law, the state doesn't care at all what the people think, um, you know, doesn't matter if they don't want the nuclear plant built there, it's going to happen anyway. And it's a very simplistic, I think, understanding. Um, but tell us a little bit about, I guess, in closing a little bit about attitudes to nuclear, but particularly that kind of anti-nuclear sentiment. Is that a, is that a threat at all in some ways? Or, or how, how significant is it in terms of delaying projects or canceling projects? Do you think it's likely to arise in the future um, to be a bigger issue? What's, what's your sense? It happened already. In fact, you have many protests of all kind in China on many topics, and a lot of them related to environmental questions. You have maybe 200,000 protests a year across China for all reasons. So uh, don't, 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 don't think that China is, uh, yes, is a country uh, uh, free of uh, protest, uh, public protest. No, it happens. It happened also for nuclear uh, projects. It happened in 2014, first for a, a project in the Guangdong province, uh, which was not a nuclear plant, but which was a nuclear park, uh, uh, an industrial park supposed to manufacture fuel. Uh, for the for the for the plants, and it was uh, supposedly uh, expectedly uh, 50 50 percent CGN CNNNC park. Uh, and for these for the people who don't know the acronyms, these are the two sort of competing nuclear companies in China, right? Because there's not just one. Uh, yes, yes, it's got, yes, yes, there are nuclear companies in China. It would be like if and there was a Framatom and then a competing one. Yes, the two really big, get the along. Two, yeah. They are the two big companies in China. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they made an agreement which was very difficult for them because it was a 50%, 50%, not 49, 51, but 50, 50. It's psychologically very complicated in China uh, to get such agreement. And, uh, but uh, between Chinese, between Chinese and foreigners, there is no problem. Chinese want uh, 51, <laughs> but uh, uh, between themselves, they, <laughs> they, so it was a fight. And, and, and then finally they agreed, but there was a protest in the street uh, for only one and a half day. And then the project was canceled. How big was now, the protest? How many people? The project, uh, uh, we don't know how many people okay. were in the streets, but we've seen pictures and there were maybe hundreds of people, not, not thousands, not, okay. hundreds of people, yes. Okay. Yeah. And the same happened in uh, August 2016 in uh, east, northeast uh, part, not Shan, near Shandong province, above, above Shanghai, between halfway between Shanghai and, and Beijing. And uh, there was a protest also against in, in a place where they were working, operating two, two reactors, where now, now it's a little, a little bit later, there are uh, four reactors operating and there are two reactors under construction. Mm -hmm. And in this very place, um, they, they, there was a plan to build a reprocessing plant with the French uh, Orano. Mm -hmm. And people protested in the street for one day and the project was canceled. Um, so I myself have some doubts about the, the sincerity or the honesty, honesty of, this, <laughs> of this protest. Were there a kind of manipulation to cancel the project? Might be possible. Um, so you're saying, you're saying that the kind of powers that be use the protest as an excuse to cancel the project, not that the yes, protest Yes, it, it doesn't mean that the protests were not 
true. Right, right. But uh, but yes, they were a little bit too easily uh, followed, you know. Uh, right, like a so, half-day uh, protest shutting down a yes. multi-billion-dollar project. Okay. Yeah. 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 So so I have some doubt about this. Uh, but more generally, yes, there is the, when Fukushima happened in China. All the shelves in the southern China, all the shelves in the shops uh, went empty, particularly the salt. You could not find salt because salt yeah. is supposed to have iodine. 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 <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, There's probably some salt poisonings uh, that happened afterwards. <laughs> yes. But this one, but they were empty only for a week. Yeah. And then, and then people calmed down somehow, and they got uh, more confident about the news that were said on the on the on the, on the TV. Uh, anyhow, there is a, a, a kind of sensitivity, yes, to this question. Uh, of course, they are following what happened in Fukushima last week. There were several articles in Chinese in China about post-Fukushima consequences in Japan. And uh, but always with the conclusion that Japan cannot do without nuclear. And and that sorry, so in the press, like throughout Europe, the United States, Canada, like our our national broadcaster claimed that the earthquake caused the nuclear accident, and that the yes. nuclear accident caused twenty thousand deaths. Yes, yes. So it's, it's no, not, I'm guessing. I'm guessing yeah. it wasn't reported like that in China. No, no, it was okay. not. They make they make the difference yeah. uh, because first, for the reason that they they, they first suffered. And are still somehow sometimes suffering of earthquake by themselves. Yeah. You no, know, you have the the huge earthquake in 2006 in Sichuan province, which killed uh, forgot uh, 15,000 people. So it's uh, it's uh, maybe 7,000 forgot the exact number. But it's it's uh, it was a big uh, catastrophe in China. So I mean they are used to the to the and also floods happened in China along the rivers, and yeah. it's also considered as a, as a, as a, as a hazard. Uh, yeah. Hazard and the misery and the, so they they, they 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 cannot they cannot make the they cannot make the confusion. Mm -hmm. Yes, they, they do separate the, the two things. Um, all Asia has experienced enough earthquakes to make the difference between earthquake and and nuclear disaster. Uh, uh, but uh, would they believe, for instance, the South Korean? Uh, you remember in 2017 they made this movie. Um, which was named uh, uh, Pandora's Pandora's Promise. No, it was no Pandora. Pandora's Promise okay. is a documentary. It's the pro, and, yeah, pro nuclear. Yes, yes, and, and and they made a, a kind of uh, yes. They took the same name, and the, the movie was uh, named Pandora, and it was uh, um, telling the story of uh, one young uh, worker in a nuclear plant with his family and so, and uh, following a, a disaster, Fukushima-like disaster. Right. Uh, so it had it was seen by two million people in South Korea, and it had a big impact on the polls, who uh, decided for the coming uh, elections. And it's why the currently president of South Korea he promised that if he would be elected, then he would stop uh, nuclear construction. Wow! Wow! And so this played a role, a big role in South Korea. Can the same thing happen in China uh, today? According to no, it cannot, because uh, you have uh, very uh, simple people, uh, not educated people, they are taking advantage of these constructions. They are supporting construction, they are supporting development. And you have educated people and uh, who are, uh, uh, 
as you said, enthusiastic about, about uh, new technologies. Mm. Uh, don't forget that uh, we have forgotten in the West that uh, the nuclear reaction itself is a kind of a wonder of nature. Mm. And uh, this, uh, the fact that we can get energy out of it is the second wonder. But this first wonder that you know, the radioactivity is at the root of, it's the very root of life on earth. Mm -hmm. Probably without radioactivity, we would not have any life on earth because the, the, the atmosphere would yeah. not be protected uh, from the outside radiations and so for many reasons. Yeah. And uh, so, so, because it's, it's the nuclear reaction within the center of the earth that right. make moving the, 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 the core of the earth. And yeah. this, move, this movement enables the, the, the field, the magnetic field. This yeah. magnetic yeah. field is entertained by the movement of the moon also yes. and all this together makes life possible on earth it is also possible that radioactivity played a role somehow three billion years ago two and a half billion years ago for the first uh, split of the first uh, multicellular uh, organism wow. so there is there are many reasons to believe that uh, the radioactivity right plays somehow a role in our uh, uh, current life. So there is a wonder hidden in radioactivity. It's mm. something hidden. It is true. We don't see radioactivity. We don't see radiation. It's why we, are, we fear them. We are afraid of them. But sometimes in something that we don't see, there is something hidden. And this hidden thing is not is not maybe threatening us on the contrary is one of the secrecy yeah. <laughs> and one of the secrets of the of, the, of life and, and and the world and yeah. i think that chinese are mentally more open to that they yeah. are more open to um for instance look at what they did for the covid 19. what they did they tried everything because with humility they know that we cannot decide what is absolutely right and all the rest is absolutely wrong. There is only the va uh, vaccination and all the rest is wrong. Chinese believe that we don't know. Maybe giving some vitamin D, maybe giving sometimes some traditional medici medicine um, help, maybe sometimes something else. So they try everything. Mm -hmm. And they try everything with humility. Yeah. Uh, and they have the same attitude towards uh, many, many, many things, including the, the, the wonders of nature. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm sure that it, this also, even though it's never said by no one, but it plays a role in the mentality towards yeah. this, uh, this, this uh, energy. Yeah. Okay, Francois, um, we could talk all day. It's been uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you for for making the time to to come on Decouple, and uh, we will have you back. I can promise you that. My pleasure. Okay. My pleasure. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.